0: Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu, salamu ala rasulillah, alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, brothers and sisters, as we always do in the beginning, the state of our brothers and sisters in Palestine has not stopped. Although the media has calmed down and people are, are starting to find it difficult to share information, it's being censored, we do not forget. So, let's begin with the dua for them. Allahumma salli fi O oh, Allah, give victory to our brothers in Gaza and Palestine. O oh, Allah, save them and take them out of their misery. O oh, Allah, give them victory against their enemy. O oh, Allah, O oh, Allah, stop and oppose their enemies. Stop them in their tracks and give mercy to those who have passed away among them, the the Muslims, and the the oppressed and the victims. May Allah subhanahu wa taala make their children among them, among the birds of paradise, and are waiting for them in Jannah. May Allah subhanahu wa taala admit their martyrs into. The ranks of the martyrs and the righteous and the prophets. I ask Allah to forgive our shortcomings and to assist us against this oppression. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't stop. You keep being, making awareness. It is not time to uh, be cowardice or to be lazy about it or to give up. We always make dua for them. We protest wherever we can. We talk about it wherever we can. We share information as much as we can within our ability. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim And now I want to begin a, a topic which I think is very important for our community and it's something that can be sensitive as well but it's very important to talk about, very important to guide my Muslim brothers and sisters. So the topic about enjoining what is right and forbidding what is wrong. The reason I chose this topic is because I found a lot of our brothers and sisters, especially, although they're very sincere, and as they get more religious, this topic is not really well known to them. And they get... A little bit misguided in how to apply it. And so I have seen some of them um, turn what is meant to be good to worse. And they may have caused unity into disunity. They may have turned people away from the religion rather than bring them closer. So I want to talk about this topic in a little bit of detail. But first, I want to say a motivational word to you all. Since I've just come back from the UK and we haven't had a class for a while, please invite your friends to come to the mosque. Invite them to come and listen. Even if the topic is not interesting or they know it, there's something else about coming to a gathering like this, here or anywhere, not just my talk, anyone. It could be another speaker here. Even for jamaah, whatever it is. And there are people out there who find it very hard mentally, emotionally. They're struggling, they're lonely, they feel isolated. Some of them are quite sad and they don't know how to get out of certain problems. So being with the community and being in gatherings like this has a very positive effect on your spirituality, your mindset, your heart, and just your general well-being. So listen to what the Prophet, peace be upon him, said. The hadith is in Sahih Muslim and its meanings also in the Qur'an, of course. That the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, فِي بيت من بيوت الله Not, There isn't a single gathering of people whenever they gather in one of the houses of Allah. A masjid, for example. يَتْلُونَ كِتَابَ الله they recite the book of Allah, or they study the book of Allah. And they study it among themselves, meaning they talk about the teachings of the Qur'an, like what we're doing now. Or you recite it together by sitting in circles, or someone's teaching you, or you're listening, whatever it is in the masjid. إِلَّا نَزَلَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّكِينَةِ Except that peace and tranquility descends upon them. You start feeling that beautiful sense of serenity and peace in that gathering. And mercy encompasses them. You actually feel it. The mercy of brotherhood, the mercy of sisterhood, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala making you feel it. And the angels surround them and spread their wings until they reach the sky. And Allah mentions those people among His angels with Him. In another hadith in Bukhari, he says that there are a group of angels who roam the nights and the days. And these angels, their mission is to look for wherever there are groups of gathering, where they remember Allah together, where they learn about their deen together, where they have come together to praise Allah, to remember Allah. It's called dhikr, such as reciting Quran. Uh, coming together to say subhanallah, alhamdulillah, la ilaha illallah, reminding one another, talking about the hereafter, Allah, the deen. Except that when they find them, they surround them and they extend their wings. And then after that, they, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks them, where were you even though he knows? And they say, Ya Rabb, we were at one of your groups of your servants. And he says, what what were they doing while he knows? And they will say that they were making tasbih, subhanallah, glorifying you, praising you, uh, saying, la ilaha illallah, remembering you together. And he says, and what do they want? Even though he knows what they want, and they say they want paradise and your forgiveness. He said, what if they were, have they seen paradise? They say, no. He says, what if they were to see it? They say, if they were to see it, they would work for it more intensely. And he says, what else? They say, they gathered for your sake out of your love. He says, and have they ever seen me? And they say, no, Ya Rabb. And Allah says to them, what if they were to see me? And they say, if they were to see Ya Rabb, their worship and their intensity of the obedience and worship to you will be multiplied beyond measure. He said, and what are they seeking refuge in? Or do they, is there something they're afraid of? And they say, yes, Ya Rabb, it is hellfire. He says, what if they were to see... Have they seen hellfire? They said, no. They say, no. And then he says, what if they were to see hellfire? They reply, if they were to see hellfire, they will be more intensely striving to do everything to stay away from it. And then Allah says to them, bear witness that I have bestowed my pleasure upon them, and I have granted them paradise, and I have saved them from the fire. The ulamat say that if they were to die that day or that night, that's what they get. Then an angel says, "O oh my Lord, there was a person who entered upon that gathering. He wasn't part of that gathering, but he had a worldly matter with someone. So for example, he came in because let's say he had some wealth owing to someone in that gathering or some business. But he sat down a distance, waiting. And Allah says, And I count him as part of the gathering. And then Allah says, la bihim These are the real gatherings. These are the gatherings Allah loves. These are the real gatherings and their companions who are associated with them. Even if you're sitting aside and you're coming in for something, you're just waiting, they are blessed by their gatherings. So the angels encompass even the person who comes in, had some business with someone, and waits. You're part of that gathering. So the gatherings of remembrance of Allah are the best gatherings. Having said this, brothers and sisters, I now move on to my topic. First of all, I quote a verse from the Quran as an introduction. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Ali Imran. A'udhu you are now the best people brought forth for the guidance and reform of mankind. You enjoin what is right and forbid what is wrong and you believe in Allah. From this verse, brothers and sisters... Let us analyze a few things. First and foremost, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises the nation and ummah, the followers of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He does not praise them based on their ethnicity or their gender or what color or group they belong to. So Muslims are not just Arabs. He praises them for three things. Number one, the fact that by following the messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the messenger of Allah, they enjoin others in doing good wherever they see an opportunity to help people reform for the better to advise people to develop and do goodness and wherever they see an opportunity to do projects for example or work together on establishing some program which helps people improve and change their ways to better and they call to that which pleases Allah and that which is good for people, whether it's universal values or Islamic values, anything that is good, this Ummah is favoured because of that. And they are favoured also for forbidding what is wrong. They forbid what is wrong on anything that is universally unaccepted, such as oppression and injustice and they come together to voice their words and to physically work together to stop it whether collectively or individually and they forbid evil where they can for people around them individually their families their friends their community wherever they can and the third quality is that they also believe in Allah meaning they are sincere They do it for the sake of Allah. They don't do it out of pride or attention or seeking any uh, material gain. They truly want Allah's pleasure. And by believing in Allah, it means that they look at themselves before they look at others. They practice what they preach as much as they can. And if they make the wrong, they try to improve themselves as well. They are genuine, sincere people who are wise, believe in Allah, and will only do things in the way that Allah is pleased with. So these are the three qualities that make you the best of nations any nation which calls to good and prohibits evil rises above other nations that's where the value is and the tone of this verse is not a tone of allah making you a judge over people it's not telling you you command good and prohibit evil in the literal sense meaning you go around every little thing that you see someone doing wrong you act like a police officer, or a judge, or an authority, whether it's in public, in private, or on social media. Allah is not giving you and me an authority and judgment over people, but a goodness of wanting good for others and to help the community individuals to get better in the most wisest and good way with genuine intentions. It means helping and advising the community you live in and individuals you interact with, is what the scholar said. Wherever you can and wherever there is a good cause, to change bad to good, good to better, and minimise the bad. It can be done on a collective level or individual level. For example, helping someone improve on something, stopping someone from committing a wrong act against someone else or against themselves, teaching, educating, writing, discussing can be done by action and behavior, for example, if uh, talking is not good. Role modeling in a gathering, in a public speech, through a second or third party. You might go to the imam and say, Ya yeah, imam, there are people who come to the masjid. They're very bad to their parents. There are people still not praying. There are people who are dishonest in their trade. There are people who are like this and like that. Yeah, imam, maybe you can give a public khutbah. An imam gives a khutbah without exposing or pointing at anybody. It's called wisdom and goodness. That's commanding good and prohibiting evil. Uh, Depending on the need for right or the seriousness of the wrong, different approaches are needed from big intensities such as protests and even physical action if needed. And some are not wise to say or do anything at all. Depending on the situation and harm versus the benefit, clarity versus ambiguity of the the situation, and knowledge versus ignorance of the situation, all of this comes within the guidelines and the wisdom of enjoining that which is right and forbidding that which is wrong, commanding that which is good and prohibiting that which is wrong. My brothers and sisters, what is the ruling among the scholars about prohibiting what is wrong and enjoining what is right? They said that, majority of them said that this is a collective obligation not on every single individual. Not every single individual has to at all times command good and prohibit evil in all circumstances. It's a collective thing. It's called in Arabic an obligation that if a group of the community do it, the others don't have to do it. So long as there's something happening about certain topics. Um, as they are needed, the rest don't have to take it on. And I'll give you an example of something that is really a put off. So social media has opened the door for anybody and anyone, good and bad, knowledgeable or ignorant, uh, uh, egotistic or genuine, whatever they are, to just type whatever they want. And what called me to talk about this topic are a few things. So, I don't know if you've seen, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, with the rise of the current events in Palestine, it's prompted a lot of people to look into Islam, non-Muslims. We talked about this last time. And I've seen a few times where they've come up on social media saying that they've become Muslims and they want to talk about their journey and how beautiful Islam is. But unfortunately, as after a few weeks, we've seen these same people come up on social media crying. When they first converted or reverted to Islam, they're crying out of happiness. I was so disheartened to see them posting that they are crying out of disappointment. Against who? Disappointment with the Muslim community. These people come to talk about their deen, they're still new. They don't know the whole religion or maybe they know some things, but they're slowly, step by step, getting better. They have their own circumstances, we don't know. And you find, I've seen some of them, comments. A hundred comments after each other over the span of one day or two days. Everyone's saying the same thing. If they're a sister, your hijab, your makeup, your lips, your eyes, your dress, appearing on social media. Uh, you've got music in the background. Uh, don't say that, say this. All right, one person says it, another person says it, third person says uh, 200. Everyone's saying the same thing. If it's a brother, again, brother, you should get rid of those tattoos. Brother, go and get laser. Brother, do this. And you've got all sorts of different, and some advices are really not even true. For example, he doesn't have to get rid of the tattoos. He doesn't. That's in the past. In fact, rid of them probably harm him or her. Laser therapy can cause cancer. So you've got to get advice from doctors. Yet you see some Muslims coming up, acting like super Muslims, mashallah, and they think that they're advising them in a good way. Some of them, they might come up with still an earring or a a nose ring. Don't wear a nose ring. You're a Muslim. They just converted maybe a week ago. Even some of them who are Muslim. We don't know the circumstances. They come up, they want to do a good deed on social media. Unless it's something really, really openly wrong and bad, we can advise them. I'm going to talk about how we do it. But you see what I mean over and over again. So... You don't bring people closer you deter them like that. And that is why Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ud'u'u ila sabili rabbika bil hikmati Call to the path of your Lord with wisdom and with goodly advice. What does wisdom mean in Arabic? Bil It means to place an action or word in its right place. Reflect Ask, seek advice. When is the right time to say what and to whom? Or is it the right time? Or should we or should we not? What other way should we do it? You need advice. Then just jump there. So, وَالْمَوْعِضَةِ hasanah means what is goodly advice? The goodly advice is what would make that person feel better or learn more and not make the situation worse? I can give you one major problem with advising people on social media or in a gathering one major problem is whenever just look at yourself if somebody advised you in front of someone else or they took or they advised you alone and there's someone who really knows you for example which one are you more likely to take the advice from the person who advised you in front of others or the person who found a good time and Maybe even chose a good friend to approach you in a way where you're not put on the spot. Of course, in private. And even then, in private, who is the one that's going to advise them? They might turn around and say, "I don't know you. Why are you advising me, bro?" They're not going to understand. So you've got to have wisdom and goodly advice. What would make things better, not worse? Imam Shafii, have you all heard of Imam Shafii, one of the great imams, he wrote a poem. He says, "T'ammadni bin bin firadi." Approach me with your advice, alone, to the side. fil Avoid advising me in front of others. Fa'inna nushha biin al-nasi' Advising in public, in front of others, is one type. Min la arda one type of humiliation and degradation which I do not want to listen to. if you disagree or you disobey what I'm telling you right now, فلا تجزع إذا لم then don't go complaining and chucking a fit. If I don't listen to you or want to hear what you have to say, the point is, don't advise people in public. And also see whether the device is good. Sometimes you might, span, suppose you might DM someone and it just keep spamming them until they just get sick of it. That is why Allah says in the Quran about the, from Ibrahim and the children of Israel with Moses and others, they said, Rabbana la O our Lord, do not make us a fitna, a problem and a mischief or a corruption for those who disbelieve. In another verse, for those who believe. Meaning, do not make us a cause by our actions and our sayings to deter those who disbelieve away from Islam or to look at Muslims in a negative light and give them a justification. Do not make us a cause to just give them a justification to attack us and our religion. We told you these guys, look at them. All they do is attack each other. If their religion was right, they would be united. Now I might as well stay a Christian. I might as well stay an atheist. I might as well stay uh, a Jew. I might as well stay or whatever. We're better off. That's what it means. And also, don't make us fitna to those who believe, meaning Muslim, between each other. A person may be on the verge of getting better in the deen or not, and they look up to certain scholars and sheikhs, and they see... Uh, uh, people fighting Muslims over each other. This one is cancelling out that one. That one is saying this one's a deviant and that one's a misguided person. And that one don't listen to him. And this one's a blah 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 blah. And this one's or whatever. Over fighting like this, deterring people away when their intention was to try and protect people, but instead it's deterring people. This person might say, "Man, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm really just trying to I'm just trying to pray the fajr right now, man. I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether Allah exists. I got issues, man. I got problems, and here I'm seeing." These are religious people. They're more, they've got more anxiety than me. They've got more fights than I had with my mates. I might as well just go there before I go in the deep end here. That's, and brother, you know me. I've been in da'wah for a long time, alhamdulillah, and I've spoken to a lot of the da'is that, that, you know, that have been in this scene. And what we learned along the way is that this approach is turning people away and causing more disunity and deterring. Young people from coming closer. We don't want to do that. So for, that, for those of us who alhamdulillah carry this religion and we've been honoured with the Quran, we need to approach it and teach it in the way that Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to teach it. Whenever someone came to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and told him about someone or a group that is doing something wrong, he would never mention their names. He would not point to them. He would not even make it even hint who he's talking about. In fact, he used to get up on the mimbar and he would talk to everybody as a community. And he would say, uh, Why do I hear that there are some people doing this or that? And he would say it so carefully so as nobody would even know who he's talking about, but make it general and public. If you really want da'wah, you really want to improve the situation and turn people towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you would always be very careful, reflect and ask for advice in what is the best approach. And if you can't find it, don't do it. Because you might be causing more harm than good. So brothers and sisters, I want to go through this. I want you to understand something else. And this is directed to us as Muslims living in the modern time and most of us in the Muslim world, uh, in the Western world. So I'm speaking English, therefore I'm talking to the majority of the Muslims who are living in the Western world. When you give da'wah and you wanna command good and prohibit evil, you've gotta understand the society and the modern world that you live amongst, and then approach it accordingly. You do remember that in the Quran, Allah constantly tells us about the prophets he sent in history each type of people they were sent to they had different norms different customs different mindsets different moods so he would send the prophets and messengers in the language of his own people what does it mean in the language not it doesn't mean literally just their language like chinese or arabic no in the language means in the way they understand in the same con, in the same uh, customs, mindset in the same uh, approach that they like to be approached or would listen. So he would understand his people. That's why I sent some prophets were a bit harsh, others were softer, others were eloquent, others were straight to the point. There were some of them who would approach them through other means, others direct talking, and so on. For the children of Israel, for example, he had to send two prophets at the same time, one soft, one Stern. Musa, السلام, was stern. And Harun, alayhi salam, was soft. They needed both. So we need to understand society we live in. And mostly in the West, brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, the modern world, they will agree that you need to stand up together and oppose anything that is universally unjust. So anything that harms anyone else. Alhamdulillah, as you can see in the protest, so many Muslims and non-Muslims stand up together with this common cause against injustice of what Israel is doing to the uh, Palestinians. Isn't that right? But when it comes to individuals in the modern society, individuals don't like being approached. If you try to come and tell them about right or wrong, Muslim or non-Muslim, they're going to tell you, what's it to you, mate? What's it to you? That's my personal life. Who are you to come and tell me that I'm supposed to do this or not do that. Mind your own business. Now, you can sit there, keep fighting and protesting and making posts about it and making little gatherings about how wrong it is. Or you can sit there and say, this is the reality, this is the situation. You can't check, that's the society you live in. Find out what is a better approach. I've been a teacher for nearly 20 years, alhamdulillah. And I've educated young people. Some of you are here among us, isn't that right? And I've seen them grow and go into society. I was born here as well. I studied overseas, but I was born here. I was raised here. I understand this community and this society. And alhamdulillah, we've been involved in da'wah in all walks of life, all different religions. Ask people who have experience with people. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, don't fight it that way. The Muslim is like the palm tree. You lean with the wind. You're smart. You're intelligent. We grab books, we learn about emotional intelligence. We grab books, we learn about the art of how to communicate. Grab books about management and business. See how, for example, a manager talks to his or her employees. What is the best way of being a leader? And now take that and use it in your dawah. Use it in your obligation, wherever it is, where you can help advise someone good and advise someone to stay away from bad. Use that. Use the art of emotional intelligence and communication styles. The pre-modern world of our scholars, of our great scholars, said some amazingly wise things. But not, we cannot take all of their method anymore, because their method was appropriate for their time. They used to have a khilafa. they used to have an Islamic state with a caliph, a caliphate, where they had literally territories and empires of Islam that ruled in accordance with the Sharia. So their commanding and prohibiting good and evil was on a higher level than ours today. You can't do the same as what they did. So why am I saying that some religious people who, alhamdulillah, get more knowledgeable, they go to the traditional books and that's excellent, but they they don't know how to take that and apply it in the modern world. So that's an art. Dawah is an art. So... If you know that somebody is like that, and we live in a society where people don't like to be told or approached, then we have got to find a different approach. I have uh, neighbors who are non-Muslim, and my neighbor right next to me, we had four different neighbors that shifted and changed their houses. Each one of them, by the will of Allah, we gave them da'wah. But how did we give them Da'al? I don't remember much conversation about religion with them. I remember normal conversation and behaviour and actions. They would see us, see me, for example, dressed like this, see my mother and sisters in their hijab. Eid would come, we'd do things, we'd share with them, we'd talk to them, we'd smile to them, we'd give presents to their children. Events came along, such as COVID. We spoke about it. And every opportunity, as I got closer, I would chuck in a few verses from the Quran without them realizing. I would say, in in our religion, we don't do this, we do that. And it generates discussion. As you can see, brothers and sisters, Dawah is not only one way. First, understand the people you're talking to. Same goes with your family, with your friends, with Muslims at the mosque with Muslims in your neighbour, with Muslims at Islamic organisations, with sheikhs and imams, anybody. Be careful and take a step back and realise, okay, what's the best approach? How can I advise? So I'm going to talk quickly about two parts, about commanding good and prohibiting evil, or enjoining good and forbidding what, enjoining what is right and forbidding what is wrong. The two parts are easy, inshallah, for us to go by. Number one, I call the, the rules... And conditions what are the rules of enjoining good and prohibiting uh, the wrong and number two the etiquettes and manners the mannerism of how to approach it so one are the guidelines the second one are the mannerisms all from the Quran and Sunnah do you want to follow the Sunnah then let's go the best person is a da'i da'i Allah and a da'i is an art an expertise and education and knowledge number one I'll say quickly the ten rules and guidelines and the ten etiquettes and mannerisms quickly and then I'll explain or discuss each one briefly number one the ten rules and guidelines in in joining that which is right and prohibiting what is wrong number one you must be knowledgeable about that matter which you are about to Command good or prohibit evil. Number two, you need to approach it in priority. You've got to prioritize what to approach and what not to approach. What's more important than another? So prioritize. Number three, you must make sure that it does not lead to a greater bad, a greater wrong. By preventing a wrong, will it lead to a bigger wrong? If it leads to a bigger wrong, you do not change it. Number four, you must be aware of the background, circumstances, and norms of the people, individuals, before advising or opposing. Number five, there are situations where the good and the bad are mixed, such as coming to a mosque and finding that people are praying five times a day, but you notice within their prayers, they're doing some wrong actions or there's some wrong things around. And when they're mixed, what do we do in that situation? Number six, Scholarly differences of opinion do not fall under commanding good and prohibiting evil. Scholarly difference of opinion, such as when people follow a different school of thought, or you know that there's a difference of opinion among scholars, you do not command good and prohibit evil in this case. You can talk together and discuss, but not commanding good and prohibiting evil. Number seven, the wrong that you are advising about has to be public knowledge has to be done in public meaning the person who's doing the wrong it's a public thing not private meaning you don't go spying on them and prying on them to find out and then give them advice number eight the wrong that you are trying to change is in the present not in the past you don't go and try to uh, prohibit the evil of something that's already in the past and you remind this person you keep going at it it's gone now number nine Choosing the best time to command good and prohibit evil. And number 10, avoid passing judgment on the person. Whether then or later on. Now we go to the 10 etiquettes and mannerisms. The approach. Number one, you must approach it with, number one, sincerity. You have to be muhlis, sincere and genuine for the sake of Allah. You're not doing it for superiority or egotistic uh, gains or narcissistic gains or, 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 or control or because of your low self-esteem you want to say that so that you can feel like you're controlling someone else. It has to be sincere for the sake of Allah. Really wanting the best for them. Number two, you've got to be patient. You're not allowed to sit there and getting angry and upset because they didn't listen to you. It's no longer sincere. You've got to be patient and you've got to find the right ways. Don't give up very quickly. Number three, convey Do not judge. They're very two different things. Convey. Do not judge. Number four. You must not expose the person, if it's an individual, or a particular group, if it's not that serious. And there are two types. You must not expose that person at the time you give them the advice or after you give them that advice. Okay, we're going to go through that. Number... uh, Five, you must approach it with gentleness and kindness. Do not shove it down their throats. Do not engage in fruitless argumentations with them. Then there is humbleness. You approach it with humbleness for the sake of Allah. You don't approach it like you're better than others. Number Six, work on improving yourself in practicing what you preach. Number seven, avoid a gathering in, avoid a gathering engaged in wrongfulness until they re-engage in something good again. Number eight, uh, uh, I think it's number nine, accept advice from others just as you advise others. And number 10, seeking support and advice from those you trust in advising others. So you have to seek advice from other people. Say, how do I approach this, bro? Can you give me an advice? What do you reckon? Should I do it, should I not? Get advice. So let's go through them quickly. A discussion. Part one, rules and guidance. Knowledgeable. I wanna spend a few minutes on this. Knowledgeable. Imam Noah, he divides it into two types. He says, knowledge is divided into two types. Clear, common knowledge, which everybody knows, such as you shouldn't drink alcohol, such as murder, such as betrayal, such as cheating in business, such as dishonesty. Everybody knows them. Number two, expert knowledge. Only scholars are allowed to speak about expert knowledge. Many people love to go and read a booklet and they jump onto talking about expert knowledge, differences of opinion, different aqeedah and ishtihad, and names of this and name of that. This is not your place, brothers and sisters. This is for the scholars to speak. If they don't speak, you don't speak. In fact, you shouldn't speak. Ibn Taymiyyah, in his book Al-Istiqamah, says, لا يأمر بالمعروف وينهى عن المنكر إلا من كان. A person should not command or prohibit evil unless they are well versed and knowledgeable in what they are commanding, what they are prohibiting. And you are not permitted to command good and prohibit evil on religious matters that you assume to be the right way. You go and read a book and then you come up with a conclusion that's the religious verdict. Then you start going, advising, and commanding, prohibiting others based on your personal assumption. Or your personal judgment. Without help from the scholars, you make that judgment. Or your cultural customs. Some people, they advise other people on religious grounds when they don't know that it's actually their custom and culture. Uh, or your own scholars or school of thought. You have a, a one or two scholars that you follow. The others, they follow other scholars. They follow other schools of thought, but no. You insist we're the right, you're the wrong. Commanding and prohibiting on these grounds, you've got to be very careful with them, brothers and sisters, unless it's very, very clear. And then you do it with very uh, sound and respectful ways. I was uh, uh, praying in the UK as imam. They, we, I stood imam and the, the mashaykh were behind and they, they asked me to pray. Uh, nothing special, we're all equal, alhamdulillah, but they asked me to pray imam. So on social media, we had people who were saying to me, even here at the mosque, for example, they're saying, wear a hat. I've got to wear a turban, or uh, I think uh, they call it t- toppy or something like that. I think a name like that. Now, I understand where they're coming from. And uh, I had even a letter come to the mosque saying, uh, make sure that he wears a cap even when he goes to the toilet, even when he sleeps, uh, whenever he's facing people. I had people who say, brother, what are you teaching the youngsters? You're not wearing a cap. You should be practicing the sunnah. Now, it's okay, I don't get upset. That's fine, we get this all the time. But here's the thing when I reply and I try to explain from grounded knowledge, from long years of study and training with scholars and mashayah talking about these concepts and these issues, they still won't accept it and they continue, You are doing wrong, you are doing wrong. These are matters which are not clear cut. And sometimes they don't understand that there is a custom and culture involved. So, for example, in certain customs and cultures, they wear turbans. In others, they don't. Some they wear the long hat, some the short hat, some don't wear anything. The Prophet ﷺ wore a turban and a cap on his head, not because it was a religious sunnah, but it was a customary culture of the Arabs. He was an Arab who wore like the Arabs. Abu Jahalan, Abu Lahab also wore, for example, the turban and the cap, just like the Muslims. They'll be fighting on the battlefield and they're wearing the same. He wore it before he became sent as a prophet and afterwards. And he wore one time a Roman cloak and another time he wore a Persian cloak. And they're kuffar, they're disbelievers. Why? To show diversity. Rasulullah SAW once didn't wear anything on his head. How do we know? Because of the hadith where he described that he used to part his hair in the middle. So he certainly didn't wear it every time when he went to sleep and went and come into the bathroom and everything. And people don't know the difference between sunnah that is religious and sunnah that is uh, not religious. So the practices of the Prophet ﷺ are in two types. The ones that are religious, they become part of the religion, and the ones that are either based on customs, traditions, or personal likes. For example, the Prophet, peace be upon him, did not like eating lizard meat, Khalid ibn al-Walid once came, the hadith is Sahih Muslim, the, or I think one of the other six books, it's, it's authentic. And Khalid ibn walid came in eating lizard meat, and he approached the Prophet the Prophet said, No, no, I'm not used to that in my upbringing. How I grew up, I, I don't eat that. So, and the Prophet wasallam didn't like it, so he moved away. While Khalid ibn walid kept eating the lizard, and the Prophet wasallam was watching him. He did not forbid him nor command him. Which means it's okay. Now, if I sit there and say, you should not eat lizard meat out of love for the Prophet you'll be practicing the sunnah. Am I allowed to say that? No. That has nothing to do with the religious sunnah. The Prophet, peace be upon him, liked the color white and green. This is not a religious sunnah. Allah did not convey that to the Prophet and say, tell the Muslims, the believers, this is part of their religion. Uh, the Prophet liked pumpkin soup. That's his personal desire. He liked the shoulder of a lamb. Nobody's going to say, if you love the Prophet, eat the shoulder of a lamb. So, brothers and sisters, uh, he wore an izar. I had some people say, you can't hold a microphone while you're praying imam. One of them said, your prayer is invalid. SubhanAllah. Now, I know for certain that this person is either ignorant or probably has been told something and hasn't really studied it. I can tell. Because. Rasulullah sallallahu Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal states the authentic hadith. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi to wear his izar while he's in prayer. He would move it like this and wear it around him. He would fix his turban and wrap it around him as he is already in salat. He carried Umama, the young boy, while he's in salat and picked him up. So that if there is a need in salat to move around in a certain way, then it's okay. Carrying a microphone, you know, I had to go through a lot. We had the stand and I could carry it with my hand. They go, would you like the stand? before we started praying. I said, no, I'll carry it. Mufti Meng was at the back. He says, he's going to have problems. People are going to oppose him. There were 5,000 people behind me. The microphone, you had to put your mouth really close. I already tested it before. Now, to me, that was distracting. Because when I go down and up, I have to move my head. And I have to get close like this. And I have to move away. That means I got more movements inside the more distractions. So I chose to carry the microphone because I had to put it close and with my hand there is less movement and more concentration and the 5000 people can hear. The person replied, "No, you can get someone else to say Allahu Akbar behind you." Say so, okay. First of all, the reason why at the time of Omar or the Khulafa, they had someone say Allahu Akbar behind them is so that the people can hear you from behind. The purpose with a microphone does that. (laughs) Then I said, what about the Qur'an? The guy behind me read Qur'an as well? Now the Qur'an is not part of it. So why did Allah say, "And when the Qur'an is being recited, be quiet and listen to it? How are the people praying, I'm going to listen to the Qur'an? So what I'm trying to present to you, and I'm giving myself as an advice, may Allah guide us all and our brothers and sisters is when you want to command good and prohibit evil, don't just jump to things which you don't know about. You, you know you don't know about it. You think you do. And when someone presents you something else, don't fight for crying out loud. Can't do that. Someone said, don't cut your nails on a Thursday. It's a sin. Who told you that, man? If you cut your hair, you've got to bury it, because on a day of judgment, you'll stand on it on day of judgment. I've heard these bizarre things. And they will fight you. Some people come and tell you, you cannot eat shark meat. Haram. Like, I mean, who said it's haram? He's followed some opinion from some book. You haven't got enough knowledge about this area. If you follow a particular madhab or school of thought, fine. Don't impose it on other people. So, commanding good and requires knowledge. Not only knowledge on the subject but also knowledge about the person. And I know Maghrib is approaching. I just really want to finish this part. And next week, inshallah, I want to do part two of this. I saw a pic, for example, a post. A post. Somebody put pictures of certain mashaikh and speakers and covered their eyes. And while having those pictures, he or she had an eminent scholar, eminent respectable scholar who I respect, in a high degree, talking about the subject of people who are storytellers. He says, be careful of the Qusas. The Qusas is an shadow terminology of people who used to exist, who used to go out and tell fake tales to people. They are usually religious figures or people want to influence others. And they say, we are telling them fake tales to get the heart spiritual. And the sheikh is talking like that. I'm looking at these people this person has put there. And I'm listening to the sheikh and they are two worlds apart. What the sheikh is talking about and what this person is accusing these speakers of doing is not even there. He's saying the qussas are the people who tell tales, lies, and they don't tell the people that this is not true in order to influence them. Not one of these speakers does that. They tell stories, but they're not lies. And that is a sunnah in the Quran. Nearly half of the Quran is stories. And Allah says, in another verse, in Surah Yusuf. Tell them the stories, so that they may remember and reflect. In their stories are many wisdoms and lessons for people of brains and intelligence." So again, knowledge. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah says, "...it is not when they make a mistake or narrate what they genuinely thought was true." So some people genuinely think a story was true. Later on, they they find out it was fake. And God help a man. For the next 10 years, they're going to be called deviants and storytellers. So we've got to be very careful, brothers and sisters. Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, I'll was just say in English. Uh, Whoever slanders a believer as a kafir, then he or she, it is like murdering or killing them. The hadith is in Bukhari. Prophet Sallallahu also said if a person says to another person, to his brother or sister, hey, kafir, then one of them is the kafir and the other is not. One of them is going to take it. If he's not, it's going to return back to him. The Hadith in Bukhari. Rasulullah <laughs> Sallallahu said, no believer should slander or judge another person as being a fasiq. A fasiq is somebody. Who is constantly disobedient to Allah. Wala Yarmihi Bil Kufr, not even slant him as being a kafir, except that it returns back to the person who said it to that other person. Returns back on you. If that person truly is not a fasiq and is not a kafir, Rawa al Bukhari. A modern scholar by the name of Sheikh Saleh Al-Fawzan who I respect immensely was asked precisely about labeling a Muslim kafir or mushrik and he said Allah did not put upon you to decide who is or who isn't taklif who is or isn't even if you saw something that you assume is this judgment is resumed is uh, this judgment is left exclusively to the highly notable scholars not to individuals and common people Another scholar by the name of Sheikh Uthman al-Khamis quoted Imam Suyuti as saying, if it comes to choosing between the two, I would prefer the sin of calling an openly kafir disbeliever a Muslim than calling a Muslim a kafir. I repeat, Imam Suyuti says, if it comes to choosing between the two, I would prefer the sin of calling an openly kafir disbeliever a Muslim. Even though that's a sin, you can't say he's a Muslim because he's not. But he says, between the two, it would be less of a sin than calling a Muslim a kafir. And we all know the great hypocrite uh, oh, in Medina, what's his name? Uh, Ubay ibn Salul. Uh, when he died, Rasul wa wanted to make istighfar for him and praise Janaza over and over again until Allah says, No, I will not accept, we will not, uh, your istighfar will not be accepted for them. Because he was an open hypocrite. Rasul preferred to assume well of him rather than kufr. Some people say, I do it out of anger for the sake of Allah. I called him a kafir because I'm angry for the sake of Allah. No, that is a wrong place of anger. Some people they say, look at him, he sits with misguided people and innovators. We have to command good and prohibit evil. My brothers and sisters, when the scholars said, do not sit with the innovators and the misguided people and the corrupt people, what they meant, what they meant was this, this is a unanimous agreement. It means while they are engaged in their misguidance. If they are doing something misguiding, during that time, don't sit with them. If it is directly promoting their misguidance as well. Not casual seating. Modern scholars who talk about this are many. Examples of Shaykh al-Rahili who says, it is when they are engaged in the act, not when they are not such, not when they are not, such as your relative, colleague, neighbours, How else are you going to give dawah if we don't even sit with them? What if you marry a woman from the people of the book? She's a Christian. Don't sit with her. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Can't even sit with her. What about your cousins, your relatives? What about the verse where Allah says if your parents are disbelievers? Don't obey them but still live with them on good terms. What about the ayah in the Qur'an where Allah says Allah does not forbid you from dealing kindly and justly and equitably with those among the disbelievers who do not drive you out of your homes and do not fight you because of your religion and faith? Aren't you going to interact with them? So, finally, Allah says, and this is a great evidence... In uh, Surah 6, number 68, when you see those who are engaged in blasphemy against our signs, so it's not just people who are innovators, misguided, these are openly blaspheming the Qur'an, swearing at the Qur'an in a gathering. Allah says, turn away from them, meaning leave their gathering, until they begin to talk of other things. What does that mean? It means you can come back and sit with them if they change that engagement. Because there's still benefit, we still have to be around giving dawah and showing deen and so on. Then do not remain after recollection in the company of those wrongdoing people. Those wrongdoing people. My brothers and sisters, I'll stop here now, inshallah ta'ala. And uh, I'd like to say, just finally, especially for my young brothers and sisters who love Allah and His Messenger, I know that you love Allah and His Messenger, and whatever you say and whatever you've posted, whether you're here in the masjid or on social media listening, I assume well of you that you really, assume, you really want to do the right thing and you've been told maybe that this is the right thing to do. And I'm advising you as a father, an uncle, and a brother that some scholars, it depends on how people ask them the questions. I have sat with many great scholars overseas in my time and I remember many times... People will be sitting in the audience or a student would specifically ask a question with a motive. And the scholar is oblivious. These scholars, they're very oblivious. A lot of them don't have this art of, 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 of reading people's intentions. They're not very, they're not sly. They're not two-faced like, like the way most people are, like street smart. A lot of these scholars, even my shaykhs, rahmatullah alayh, alayhim, they passed away. They get stooged a lot in business, man. They're not what you think, they're not like geniuses in everything. They're really good at their din. So these students, they deliberately ask questions with a motive in order to target something, to get a particular answer. And that's why you will listen to one scholar, the same scholar, a YouTube question and a very similar question, very similar topic with two different answers. I'll give you an example. You want an example? You love it. Okay. So when I was in the UK. Uh, some sisters were concerned and protesting about this so-called fatwa. I don't know where it came from. Young people shared it, and I don't know where it came from. They said, a woman cannot wear a jacket over her abaya. (laughs) That would be a sight. Imagine a husband and wife. They're walking in the cold, the blizzard. He's got his jacket on. It's a waterproof jacket. His Kathmandu jacket has got his thing on the, the, the thing on top of his head. Not a single drop of water is coming on his skin. And this poor sister has been told the wrong fatwa. She's wearing her jacket inside her abaya. <laughs> she's got a khimar and hijab like that. And she's soaking water. Coming onto hijab. Because she's wearing it, it's, it's stuck to her ears and her neck and, her, and she's just so miserable, all soaking with water over it. Come on, man. Is that, is that something? Is that, is, that, is that what Islam says? Anyway, I asked, where did you get this fatwa, man? Where did you get this nonsense? Can't wear a jacket. What Islam says for both men and women is that your awrah there are two conditions. Don't wear something that is deliberately tight, revealing, or transparent. A jacket is not tight revealing unless you've deliberately like those leather jackets when you do the catwalk. Be wearing a jacket because of the cold, man, because of the rain. So they referred to a particular sheikh, an imam, a scholar. I won't say he's nobody's but he's amazing, mashallah. Wallahi, I went and listened. I said, man, I've got to see what's going on here, maybe, because I respect these scholars. But I'm always skeptic because I've seen how students and people take information from scholars and they run with it without clarity. If if you're a seeker of knowledge and you've been around knowledge, you'll understand what I'm saying. I'm just telling you the secrets that people don't know. Maybe sincerely, but that's what happens. So I went and listened to this scholar. Same question, wallahi. In Arabic, can a woman wear a jacket, al-jikit, or al-ma yusamma bil-kaza wal-kaza, what it's called, gave different names over the abayya? because of the cold, knowing that she just really is doing it sincerely because it's cold and because of all that. And he said, uh, that's a matter concerned with women. They know their affairs. It's not for me to say anything. The, the, the condition is a satr. That's what he says. The condition is that she is properly covered. That's all, whether she wears this or she wears that or this or that. That's her concern. We don't tell them how to wear. That's it. Voila, that's all. And the next two weeks, I just found... No more talking about it. And the poor brother, Mufti Menk, he copped it. Look at him. He's telling the sisters not to listen to the advice of the scholars. He's telling them to dress not in accordance with the Quran and Sunnah over a jacket. And what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters, is this. You have to be in it to know it. From outside, it's hard for you to judge things. But this is what we're saying. Knowledge You've got to know the circumstances, you've got to know the story behind it, you've got to sit with the person, you've got to be on a close range. And finally, Allah says, O <laughs> you who believed, avoid excessive suspicion. Indeed, some suspicion is sinful. And Allah says, Do not follow that which you have no full knowledge about. Indeed, your sight, your hearing, and your heart, all of these you will be accountable for. Inshallah, next week we'll continue with the rest of these ten points. As for now, هذا وصلى الله muhammad wa محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين.